Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today we are going to multiple countries. Just looking at it, I think we've got one, two, three, uh, three, three different countries in front of us right now: uh, India, England, and Scotland. And to guide us through this, the one and the only Raj Sabarwal. Raj, welcome. Thank you, David. Uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So, you know, Raj, you are among other things, uh, you're a founding partner, and uh, I had to check the card to make sure I got this title right, uh, Spirit Seeker for Glass Revolution Imports. Um, so before we jump into the product, just you know, give us a quick rundown of, of what that means and, and what Glass Revolution does. Sure. Uh, so we are a, an importer of uh, spirits, mostly, maybe a few other things, but uh, specializing in whiskey, and I guess rum would probably be our next largest category. Um, and then we've got some gins and cognac and uh, a few other things, but mostly whiskey. And that's what we're known for. Uh, started the company. We're going we're gonna to be starting our 15th year next year. Um, and I sort of fell into it. Uh, I had moved back to the U.S. I grew up in Canada and, and my uh, uh, friends, uh, now business partners, contacted me when I was in the U.S. and said, we're importing this uh, Indian whiskey in through Canada, and they're wondering about the U.S. And my first reaction was, "There's no good Indian whiskey. What are you talking about?" Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they said, "No, no, no. You got to try this." And so, in I think that was 2009, I went and tried Amrut and uh, was amazed by it. And uh, so, started the company down here in the U.S., uh, not knowing anything about the business side of it. Um, and so we had the one brand Amrut. We started in three states, uh, and now we have uh, I think about fifteen brands, and we are in uh, most states uh, across the country. That's incredible. And uh, for as I said to Raj before we started recording, if you're listening and you want a real like in depth um, history of, of what Raj has done and the evolution of Glass Revolution and how they've imported over the years. Um, you can go over to uh, sing, sorry, Single Cast Nation or One Nation Under Whiskey podcast with friend of the podcast, uh, Josh Hatton. And their episode, I figured their episode covered every question I could have asked about the intro. So definitely shout out to them and go take a listen after, after you're done here. Um, so Raj, you and I uh, met. Oh, sorry, sorry I was just going to say there's probably some updates uh, since uh, Josh and Jason and I spoke because I mean, we've added Waterford, Bimber, uh, a few other brands that I don't think we had back. I think that 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 pod, podcast is probably three years old by now. I think so. Yeah. Anyway, when there's... when it happened, you had uh, you had just signed on Waterford. Okay. So yeah, just over two years. Okay. Yeah. 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 So um, I mean, we can roll that back. So so since then, what are you been up to? Uh, well, uh, you know, COVID hit. <laughs> so that, that was, uh, uh, ironically, my uh, last uh, trip uh, before COVID hit, I was in Ireland visiting uh, Waterford and uh, I left um, Ireland on March 12th, uh, 11th or 12th, just before everything shut down. Uh, and I'm, I, I keep imagining, I w- not imagining, but realizing I was in a very crowded uh, t- pub and temple bar which was jam-packed with people on a sunday night and you know you kept hearing 
every day on the radio the you know we got some more cases of COVID, we got some more cases of COVID, and little did i know that everything was going to shut down um but i escaped and and so far knock on wood i've managed not to not to get it um which is good maybe it's all the good whiskey or something so you know that that could be it um it, but we you know it was ironic because we released waterford during covid um we released bimber during covid and um, and it's tough launching a new brand during uh, lockdown, uh, so to speak, you know, because how do you get it out to people? So um, I had to quickly learn to adapt to doing tasting events over Zoom and other um, streaming services. Um, so I think I've become quite adept at that. And uh, I, I, I'm going back to doing in-person things, but I think the... Um, the virtual part of it is probably here to stay uh, for a while anyway. I, I would agree with you on that one. Um, so before I ask my uh, next question, why don't we get into uh, the first pour? And I thought I'd let you kind of drive the ship on this one as to which ones to go through one by one. Um, you might have to remind so, me what I sent you. because uh, All good. All good. <laughs> so we've got um, the Amrit single malt. Yep. Amrit fusion. Uh, Bimber X Bourbon Casks. Yep. Mr. Pete. Yep. Uh, Waterford Organic Gaia 2.1. And then uh, Black Adder Raw Cask Pete Reek. Wow. Okay. So we're definitely not going to start with Pete Reek or, or Mr. Or Pete. Mr. Pete. That's a uh, That'll probably be, <laughs> be, yeah. be uh, end, I tongue numbing and mind blowing. Uh, let's, uh, let's start with the Waterford Organic Gaia. Um, yep. Yeah, so Waterford, uh, you know, Irish single malt uh, distillery started by uh, Mark Rainier, who most people may know the name from being responsible for the resurrection of uh, Brooklady uh, back in 2000. And, uh, you know, that was sold and Mark had started doing some interesting things to Brooklady, like uh, using local barley, uh, experimenting with different strains of barley. Um, obviously, when the distillery was, was sold, he wasn't able to continue that, but he didn't want to lose that. So he went on search of a distillery um, and lo and behold, found a place in Waterford, Ireland, which has nothing to do with the crystal. It's, it's uh, one of the oldest establishment or establishments in Ireland, uh, I think back to the 1200s by the Vikings. Um, and uh, it was an old Diageo um, brewery to make the syrups for Kilkenny and uh, for uh, uh, Guinness, um, but they decided to consolidate everything in St. James's Gate. So there was this beautiful property sitting there. Mark purchased it, was able to add the distillery component to it. and. Uh, had some old stills uh, sitting up at Brooklady that belonged to him, brought those down and uh, started stilling. But one of the interesting things is that they went on search of getting local Irish barley. So what's in your glass is the Organic Gaia 2.1, which uh, is the second release, um, the first iteration of it. And uh, it's 100% Irish grown barley, uh, organically grown. And it, um, there wasn't a, enough far, a, a farm growing enough uh, organic barley. So they actually had to 
source it from six different farms, but all of those farms grow barley exclusively for Waterford. And those farms are, are and the farmers are all listed on the uh, box for Waterford. It's yep. uh, pretty much as bad as transparent as you can be. Well, if you look at the back of the bottle, there's a terroir code on there. And if you mm -hmm. actually go on to Waterford's website and enter that code, um, you will it will take you to the entire transparency from grain to glass. Um, so when the barley was planted, when it was harvested, um, the growing season, how long it was dried for, how long it was fermented for, all of that stuff. And uh, you know, all the barley is kept separately. It's malted separately. Uh, it is mashed, distilled, and uh, aged separately. Um, it's just fascinating history of finding out more and more about uh, how they make their whiskeys and why they're different. And I've been looking forward to it. This is actually the first time that I've gotten to try Waterford. Uh, and it brings to mind a, a question that seems really dumb, I would say, in some ways, which is, I mean, their their focus, among other things, I think you can generalize it as their focus is showing how localized terroir can get. Absolutely. So, you know, yeah, thinking that Mark's uh, background before he started uh, into the whiskey uh, side was wine, and he grew up in the wine world. His uh, grandfather uh, owned vineyards in France, owned uh, wineries, his father did. And then Mark, uh, Mark owned a chain of wine shops in London, um, which he, you know, sold and, and then purchased, uh, you know, money to buy Bricklotti. Uh, so his whole knowledge and approach to things is wine. And uh, especially dealing with Burgundy and Bordeaux and recognizing how much they focus on terroir and how you can get a a row of grapes uh, and then another row right across from there. And they're exactly the same grape varietal, same, you know, the rootstock, but the grapes produce different wines and they taste different. And why is that? Uh, and if that happens with wine, why could it not happen with other spirits that you make? Uh, you know, hence the raw material is such a vital part of it. And a lot of, I think, if you look at it today, a lot of the commercial distilleries forget about that and forget about the fact that, um, you know, the, the, the grain speaks to the final product and they're more concerned with the biggest yield they can get at the cheapest price. And there is a, I mean, there's a, an argument that is going on, I think, mainly in the U.S., more so than in other countries, about whether there is terroir in whiskey. I fall very much in the camp that there is um, with the caveat, as you pointed out, that a large brand that's pumping out huge volumes of, of whiskey might lose some of that terroir because they're, or all of it for that matter, because they're getting so much grain from so many different places to meet their needs that the local aspect gets lost. Um, on the other hand, you have distillers in the U.S. now bringing up different varietals of, let's say, I mean, corn for sure, but let's say rye as well. Yep. Um, even different strains of barley where there's two row, six row and anything that goes underneath that. Right. Um, so with the, with the terroir question in general, I'm curious what you think about it because in the US, like I said, this argument seems to be going on, but it seems like it's pretty settled elsewhere in the whiskey world. 
Um, I don't know if it's settled. I mean, I think that uh, Mark certainly ruffled uh, quite a few feathers and and raised people's shackles uh, when he started on this. And a lot of the distillers said, you know, poo-pooed what he was doing and said, oh, there's, there is nothing to this. Um, but the fact that they have every new make has been analyzed uh, down to looking at the flavor profile of it. Um, and the whole thought behind that is that if you take all these different whiskeys that are made and you overlay uh, the flavors from all of them, and you want to focus on the exact flavor that you want to get, then you know which whiskeys to bring together to create that. So much like when you make a wine producer makes um, the Grand Vin or the big wine in, in Bordeaux, for example, all of the components are made separately, but they'll take, you know, okay, I'm going to take so much Cabernet Sauvignon, I'm going to take so much Merlot, I'm going to take so much of this, so much of that um, to create what I want to bottle this year. And, and so, so much so with, with uh, the barley as well is it is a living, breathing thing, right? It, it depends on the soil, it depends on the, uh, the, the rain, the sun, the wind, what's growing nearby, uh, what, how it's being pollinated, you know, what, if it's bees or whatever else is there, they're causing that to happen. Uh, you want to take it one step further and you go to biodynamic farming, which, you know, uh, Waterford recently released a biodynamic, the grown barley whiskey. Uh, that is just so incredible. I mean, you watch the video of the three farmers who grew the barley and their passion about farming biodynamically is just mind blowing. I mean, you look at the passion that they put into what they're growing. How can that not translate into what's in the bottle? Agreed. Uh, talking to a number of distilleries, I, I agree with you. If you know whether it's the farmer who also distills or a distiller who knows the farmers, whatever the relationship might be, if there's a hand-to-hand -hand kind of exchange um, and a head-to-head -head exchange of knowledge, it's really something that can't be beaten. Yeah. And, it and it stands out. I mean, tasting this Waterford, <clears throat> yes, it's Irish whiskey. But that's, you know, it it doesn't taste like something that came out of Middleton. Um, and uh, again, just props to Middleton for that matter for being able to produce so many different types out of one plant. But, you know, that being said, it doesn't taste like whether it's a Jameson or a Redbreast or a Powers or any of these different things. This is very unique. And I, I tend to overuse that word, but I quite well, enjoy it. The main thing to remember is that this is foremost a single malt. It is 100% malted barley. It is double distilled, not triple distilled. So those are two significant factors that differentiate it from 99% of Irish whiskeys. Sure. Uh, so this is foremost a single malt whiskey, which would be made exactly the same way in Ireland, except it's or sorry in Scotland, except it's made in Ireland and it's probably more Irish than anything else you can buy because it's all Irish grown barley. And, you know, so it's, it, it's sort of, you get caught in that quagmire about, okay, it's Irish, but it's not really Irish, but really it's, it's so Irish. 
Uh, so right. you don't want to go down that rabbit hole and you can be uh, stuck down there forever. So sure. Um, just, a, I mean, there, like I said, there are any number of questions that are probably going to get skipped over tonight just because there is a, a bevy of things to get to, but with, uh, as you said, this is very much like in an Irish single malt in, in many ways. And, and to your knowledge, when Mark was choosing, you know, when, you know, Berchladi is sold, I don't know the exact timeline, so correct me on this if I'm wrong, but Berchladi is sold, is looking for the next project and chooses to, chooses this particular space in Ireland. Um, you know, it has this historical connection, but to be fair, it could choose any number of places in Scotland as well to produce that same idea. So um, to your knowledge, was there a reason that he chose to do this in Ireland rather than well, Scotland? No, that's a very good question. He uh, so Duncan McGilvery, who was or still is the, the head distiller at Brooklady, had said to Mark that the best barley comes from Ireland. Hmm. And so Mark, I mean, Mark took that to to heart. He did look in Scotland. He did look in England uh, and Ireland, and uh, came across this property remembering that the barley in Ireland, um, there's, it's so good. And, and, and the conditions really help that. Um, I mean, don't forget that there is not enough barley grown in Scotland to satisfy the demands for making Scottish single malt. Uh, A lot of, a lot of barley that's used in Scotland, you know, either comes from Northern England or from the Ukraine or, uh, other countries, you know, the Middle East, whatever. Uh, and, you know, going back to your earlier point about the quantity distillers, uh, you know, they just want to give me barley, right? right I don't right. care where it came from uh, or, you know, they'll specify what kind of barley because there's, you know, most of them use uh, two row barley, um, you know, cause it's going to give them a bigger yield, yeah. but here you, here you have um, everything in situ. You can have the distillery there. You're close by to all the farms. Um, you're close to where you can dry the barley. The malting facilities are there. Uh, all of these components are working solely for Waterford. They're not. Mm-hmm. They're not there to work for anybody else. And uh, you know because that infrastructure is already in place, but nobody was utilizing it. So Mark was able to tap into that. Um, you know, if he tried to replicate that in Scotland, uh, it probably would have cost a lot more money. And, uh, you know, and you would have probably had to, uh, you know, maybe there's some areas in space side, but probably more so in the lowlands that you could have found the, that kind of thing going on, the barley being grown and the facilities to do whatever else. But for whatever reason, it did, you know, serendipity took its role and, and pointed Mark to this uh, ex uh, Diageo brewery facility. And, uh, and lo and behold, you had all this uh, Irish barley to use as well. Brilliant. I, I love it. I love the idea of it. Uh, I, this being my first taste, I can't speak to any of the other uh, batches that have come out or different farms that have been used. I know there's been quite a bit of experimentation there. Yeah. So I'm just excited to to keep trying them and and certainly off oh, this yeah. first pour it won't be the, yeah. the last one 
Well, we're going to this, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's common knowledge now, but we're going to have two peated Irish uh, Waterfords coming out this year mm-hmm. and uh, a heritage varietal hunter, which is an older barley varietal, um, which will also be released. So you're getting, you know, that's just the trajectory that Waterford is on is, is trying to produce different whiskeys with different barleys, different styles, going back to the old way of doing things. Um, and if I may just mention is that Mark hasn't stopped with Waterford. He's, he also has a rum distillery in Grenada where he's using the same thing where growing different sugarcane varietals and uh, just distilling those particular ones from different farms. Uh, and I did a, a tasting last month in um, at an event in New York. We tasted four different of the renegade rums, the pre-cast, so not aged rums. Um, and just the differences in the flavors are incredible. And if that doesn't tell if that doesn't tell you terroir exists, I don't know what does. You're you're absolutely right. And I want to hold that thought because I definitely want to uh, expand upon it a little more. Uh, as we go from Waterford, based on keeping the Mr. Pete and Pete Reek towards the end. Yeah. Let's um, do the, uh, um, the Amrud, Amrud. Uh, classic single malt. That's what I was thinking. Okay. Yeah, I think I would have put these in the, in the same order as, as you're going to go in, but uh, I, and we're getting some good cork pops out of it too. But of course, uh, you've done more tastings than I have. You led more tastings than I have for sure. So, but as a general rule, ladies and gentlemen, Pete at the end. Pete at the end. Always Unless Pete you're Pete. only doing Pete. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, so, then you go eat and repeat. And yeah. this is yeah. it's my wife's favorite joke, by the way. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll remember to tell her that later. Um, actually, you know what? Speaking of which, I'm thinking of doing, side note, a, uh, an event or a series of events trying to introduce people to Pete a little bit. Yeah. I do. I, I mainly talk to a lot of people who drink almost exclusively American whiskey, maybe a couple of scotches, but mainly bourbon rye. And uh, to them, Pete and smoke are synonymous there. There's no variation there. It's either kind of Lafroy or nothing, you know, yeah. in terms of flavor profiles, but there is so much in Pete and in smoke to go through that. Um, definitely going to design some kind of event series and well i yeah i, I i've done ones like that where maybe the, the source of peat is such a difference mm-hmm. if you get yep. isla peat versus mainland peat or you know or peat from um a, a different area in scotland it's going to produce different flavor profiles yep. uh you know isla is going to give you that salty the uh, salinity the medicinal factors that you're not going to get uh, from mainland Pete. And just on, I mean, just on Isla itself, you've got yeah, not, you know, multiple different styles. Like I love a Kalila. It's my favorite yeah. Isla scotch by far. Lefroy is too medicinal for me. Um, although mm. I respect what they do. It's just too medicinal for me. Uh, what was it? Bowmore tends to be ashy. Yeah. Um, but the point being that there's, there's different profiles again, as localized as you go. It, but, um, so that, that brings me to, a. Uh, so we're going to get into the Amrit, but the point I wanted to expand upon, which you mentioned is trying things before they are barreled. 
sorry, trying them before they before they are barreled. Okay. So yep. either you know right off the still or you know new make. mildly yep. aged new make. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, last night. This that episode is a Patreon only that'll come out um, a few weeks before this one will. But he did ask me, you know, are you tasting more new make or do you like tasting white dog or new make? And I said, uh, yeah, I've been trying to do that more because exactly as you said, that's where you're really tasting the most variation. And uh, right now I'm doing that with whatever rye varietals I can find. Hmm. So I've tried Danko rye off the still, Rosen rye, Rosen rye from multiple places. Uh, and I'm trying to do that as much as possible because besides showing the skill of the distiller, it shows that uniqueness and variety between the, the products that uh, sometimes the barrel helps and sometimes the barrel hides. That's a, you know, that's a good point. Uh, I was having this discussion with somebody the other day about how, um, you know, the Scotland, because of how long it takes to, for the whiskey to mature. And in most cases, I mean, there's a mindset that you have to have a minimum age, uh, although we're seeing a lot of younger Scottish whiskeys coming out, which are just incredible. Um, but there's, as a result of that, you tend to get distillers who will use barrels to hide flaws. Um, whereas in new world countries like Taiwan, India, um, Japan, to an extent, you're, you're, because you're the climate, your whiskeys mature quicker um, and you can put them out at a younger age. So you're using the barrels to actually enhance the flavor rather than hide any flaws. Absolutely. I, and I'm thinking of, oh, wow, that Amrit is delicious. Mm. Amrit I have had before, but not in quite some time. I know my, my palate uh, has developed it for, for a while since I've tried it last time. So that's all uh, 100% Indian barley, six row barley okay. grown in the north of India. Um, so you're six row, you're getting a lower yield, you're getting uh, less carbohydrates, um, more protein, more, uh, so you get a richer distillate that comes out of there. Um, and as I was just saying about the quicker maturation uh, perspective, I mean, that's that's a four to five year old whiskey that you're drinking. Absolutely. And I, I think of, when I compare them, I think of Amrut, um, I mean, let's be honest, multiple Jim Swan projects, um, Amrut, Kavalan in Taiwan, uh, M&H in Israel. And uh, to your point, the ability to have a cask elevate the whiskey rather than hide its flaws, um, it does force you to make that new make, make the distillate as good as you can make it before it goes into the cask. Yeah, absolutely. If, yeah. if you put crap in the cask, just, you know, you got to really yeah. blend hard to, to get the crap. Yeah. The old guy go garbage in garbage out. Um, yeah. And that it, it's, uh, I'll just backtrack to Waterford for one more second is that yeah. their new make comes off the stills at 140, 142 proof. And unlike most distillers, they uh, Waterford does not water it down. They're filling the barrels at that full strength. It's coming out oh, wow. the still. Uh, so the reason that distillers 
obviously add water before they barrel is to increase the yield, right? Because mm -hmm. if it comes off the stills at a higher amount, then you want to add water to get a bigger yield. Um, but when you put it in at a higher proof, you're obviously introducing more alcohol, more volatiles uh, to play with the wood. And mm -hmm. you're going to get more interactions, more interesting interactions going on. And I mean, that, that brings up two questions right away, which is first, Waterford's using used casks? For um, so they use a combination of new American oak, okay. ex-bourbon casks, um, premium French oak, which would have been wine, prim primarily wine casks, mm -hmm. and what they call uh, Vendu Naturel, which could be sherry, port, Madeira, um, any kind of fortified thing, even uh, Amarone, because Amarone picks up those sweet raisiny notes. Um, so they've had some Amarone casts. But again, if you put the terroir code in there, you get all, it'll tell you exactly what kind of barrels were used and what percentage went into them. I'm, I'm definitely going to do that. Uh, I, the reason I ask is you're, you're spot on. I mean, obviously that uh, the higher alcohol content is going to have a tremendous impact on how the liquid, the liquid is interacting with the barrel. Um, and I'm surprised to hear that they go, it goes in so high because you know, in the U S of course, it's, you're limited to 125 is the highest you can go in proof wise into a barrel. Uh, but you're saying in Waterford's case, they can go even higher than that. Um, and so now I have to ask like what, I know what the difference between, let's say a 103 entry proof for 110 entry proof and 125 entry proof would do to a base flavor. What does a, a fill of that level do inside a barrel? Well, I think it, it obviously depends on if the barrel is, if it's uh, a virgin new barrel or it's had contents in there prior. Um, but I think with that higher alcohol, um, you're going to, get more extraction, uh, but also the wood is going to act uh, quicker to exp expunge some of those volatiles and get those out of the, the liquid uh, sooner. That's fascinating. I, I would never have thought we're taught in U.S. whiskey. Again, it's like 125. That's the max. Used to be 110, and then they brought it up because as pointed out, get more volume at 125 entry proof. Um, but if there's one thing the Maker's Mark uh, DNA series proved, <laughs> Maker's got it right at 110. Can't yeah. speak to the rest, but Maker's got it right at 110. Yeah. Uh, so uh, jumping back to, to Ombre, the, I mean, the flavor profile immediately is wildly different from, from Waterford, as you would expect. And it being the six row versus the two row. I don't know if I would be able to pull that out of a blind of saying like this is the two row versus the six row. Yeah. But um, there's certainly a difference in uh, mouthfeel in particular mm -hmm. that I'm noticing. And there, these two are close in proof. The Waterford is 100 proof, 50% ABV. The Armbrot Classic is uh, 46%, so 92 yeah. proof. And then the Armbrot Fusion, which we'll get to, is 50%, 100 proof again. So, you know, 92 versus 100 proof, similar enough where you can compare mouthfeels. And even at a few lower proof points, the mouthfeel is, is oily, resinous, vinous. It's fantastic. 
uh, and said four to five years old. Yep. And uh, when we go into, you know, with Indian whiskey in particular, why you can't go too long with the aging process there. Well, you, you, so, I mean, one of the big things is the angel share or the, you know, evaporation rate uh, in Bangalore where, where Amrut is based is 10 to 15% a year versus one to 3% in Scotland. So if you think about it in five years, at least 50% of your barrel has evaporated. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, Ashok, who is the head distiller for Amrut, likes to say that Amrut's a missing link between Scotland and Kentucky uh, because they're making single malt like they make in Scotland. However, it's maturing like it would in Kentucky. Because in Kentucky, because, you know, you get those drier, those hotter, drier summers, you're, you lose more water. Your alcohol strength actually goes up, mm. which is what happens with Amrut. Because Amrut, you know, even though it's hot in the summer, they still have like a 75% humidity level in the summer. Right. So it's relatively dry. So obviously, you know, the atmosphere is going to look for water they're not gonna mm-hmm. you know they're not gonna look for alcohol uh right. where you if you're in a damper environment obviously that alcohol is gonna go up because that's lighter and just uh to give a little more context there um i am not at all familiar with mo- most of indian geography i don't claim to be it at all but um compared to uh, a couple of other just maybe one other like compared to a a distillery in Goa, mm-hmm. for example, um, you know, how close are we talking between a, a Bangalore and Goa type of environment? Uh, well, so Goa is on the coast. It is a lower altitude. Um, Bangalore is 3000 feet above sea level. It's in mm-hmm. South central India. So you're not surrounded by ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, so that obviously has a factor in there. There's a lot of, um, greenery, a lot of trees and other stuff growing in, in, in Bangalore. It used to be called the uh, garden city, but uh, with all the industri- industry and other people moving in there, it's, it's lost some of that greenery aspect, but uh, it, it, you know, the, the whiskey, they just mature separately, differently, uh, mm-hmm. just like you would in different parts of Scotland, um, just like you would in different parts of the U S you know, the, you know, you look at um, Wyoming whiskey, uh, mm-hmm. the summers are so hot and dry, uh, originally when they started distilling, they had to go out and l- take a hose and wet the barrels, uh, in the morning to slow down the loss that they would ex- otherwise experience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you get that happening. Whereas in, you know, um, Michigan or, uh, Ohio or Indiana, you're not going to get those big, variations in in climate sure and of course which is just going on the percentages i'm also thinking of santa fe spirits yep you know seven thousand feet above sea level right. uh bone dry high desert like zero yep. percent humidity is the average and uh they're losing about 12 percent a year yep in this ad so um you know quite a different environment in terms of it's it's a little cooler but much drier as opposed to being hotter and more humid but losing the same amount of volume per per year and they're also you know their whiskeys 
I think they're just about to hit about four years old for their average. Uh, yeah, a little. I can't remember because I had I had their. I thought it was a little older than that, maybe closer to five. I can't remember because I know when they first started distilling, I talked to to, to them and and uh, um, I, it escapes me how long how how old they are now, but yeah. That's all good. Uh, yeah, I got to try uh, their their core the four core Colkegan uh, ones and the. PX finish was their 10th anniversary mm-hmm. one that that was age stated at four years old. Okay. Um, so that's what leads me to think, and I'll go back and check this too, but I, that's what leads me to think that they're, they have the four-year-old stock for sure. And some yeah. of their stuff might be going on five, but their, their average is now approaching or about to cross over that four-year mark. Okay. Uh, which is impressive, but it's even more impressive considering that their products that are three years old, three to four mm-hmm. years old are excellent. Uh, yeah. You know, just as as these are at four to five years with Amrit, it's it's mature. It, there's zero youth here. It's it's a mature whiskey that, uh, you know, side by side with a, uh, I don't know, 10, 12 year old space side. Yep. Uh, would be quite similar in terms of maturity. Taste might be very different, of course, but the maturity level would be. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, uh, I think that. There's, you know, there still is a little um, a tannic uh, in the in the sides of the mouth that you're going to pick up there. That's mm-hmm. obviously showing the younger, uh, less time in the barrel. Uh, but it all depends on sensitivity of, you know, how how people taste or not taste. I mean, it's sure. you know, you could you could go on and on about uh, uh, what what people taste, what people sense, what they don't. Uh, you know, where we have so many different receptors um, that uh, there's uh, we can we can hardly taste uh, you know ten percent of all the different flavors that are out there. Absolutely, uh, for my palate at least, I'm I'm usually not necessarily sensitive to tannins in particular. I'm more sensitive to just woodiness hmm. in general, like a uh, that feeling or, and taste of chewing on an oak stave. Sure. Um, so less the dryness and astringency, and more just the woody front flavor, uh, but. For me, at least uh, on the classic, I'm not really getting any of the, the tannins. A little bit of, as you were pointing out, um, that is an audio only, but we're both pointing to kind of the back of the jowl right. uh, and feeling it there as a little bit of pulling a moisture out, a little bit of dryness mm-hmm. there. Um, but with the uh, the wine-like characteristics and the vin- the screw it, I can't pronounce that word right now, <laughs> the wine uh, type of mouthfeel here that just soaks down through the palate and underneath the tongue and really lays there while the rest of the flavors are bouncing around. Uh, To me, that, that points to a very well-balanced and well-aged kind of, you know, that, I think that's, that's so important, David. I get, uh, I always talk about the balance. I think people go, how come this young whiskey tastes so good? It's uh, you know, and, and uh, it's a lot of the kind of barrels that are used and the time taken and the, the balance, you know, the selection of barrels that are going to produce the right balance uh, to, to what you what you want, what you want to put out as a, a good product. Uh, you know, you can you can use cheap barrels and then mask them, you know, by finishing them the, with something um, which we t- we alluded to earlier. But uh, certainly, if you want to have the balance and the roundness and the depth of a whiskey, uh, you want to make sure that you're using really good quality barrels to begin with. Absolutely. And of course your distillate is, it's great. Uh, of course. And 
as uh, as we move on to the third one here, the Amrit Fusion. No, let's do uh, the uh, Bimber because the Fusion oh, is going to have okay. a little bit of peat in there. So I think uh, if we if we do the um, the bourbon cast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, I'm good with that. So, um, uh, you know, no, I can do a better cork pop than that. Better. Okay. I don't usually make a, a thing about cork pops, but you know, the first one or the second one are usually the best. So, <laughs> got to make those sound bites where you get them. Yeah. So, so this is. Um, this was Bimber's, um, it was a worldwide release, small batch, uh, 5,000 bottles, and I'm holding bottle 3,149. I don't know which bottle number you have. Uh, 2396. 2396, wow, okay. So 5,000 bottles worldwide, we got 1,200 bottles for the US. Um, and Bimber is a, it says right on it, single malt London whiskey. It is a distillery, in London, England proper. <laughs> Talking about the, the temperatures, I'm, I'm sure they did not expect to have a hundred uh, degree temperatures in London. And I'm just curious what's that that is doing to the uh, to whiskeys that are sitting in Bimber. Um, I'm sure Darius is not happy, but this uh, Bimber laid down their first barrels in September of 2016. So do the math. <laughs> yeah, we're just and, just about to approach six years. Correct. Um, so December 2019 was when they released their first whiskeys, and that was um, only the club members. 3,000 bottles um, sold out within an hour. But this is also Bimber gets all of their barley from one single farm that they contract with. So it's all um, Scottish-grown barley. Uh, exclusive to Bimber, uh, traditional floor maltings. They uh, use a direct fired still, which mm-hmm. is very old school again. Uh, right. Small still that uh, looks almost, it's more like an alambic style still, which is traditionally used for cognac distillation, mm-hmm. um, but direct wood fired and you know small, small yields that come out of there. Good can't imagine the, the regulatory hurdles to get a direct fired still in London proper. Yep. <laughs> God. But this has so much vanilla mm. and, and honey and uh, the oiliness on it. It is, it is uh, you know, 51.6, so 103.3 proof. Um, but again, a young whiskey, well-balanced, um, just so elegant and, and, uh, and rich. Yeah. This, the vanillas, the vanilla is definitely the first note that comes out, just flows out of the glass. Uh, not raw at all. It's, it's like walking into a, um, a pastry shop mm-hmm. where there's a lot, a lot of pastries in front window and it's just wafting off of them there is a bit of trying to decide what this is first word that's coming to mind is grassy but i don't feel like that's that's accurate but um it's not a grainy note 
it's it's a bit of i'm getting a bit of like um herbaceousness um almost like a, a mint or um um and and a little um, vegetal uh, along with it so maybe yeah, a little like under undertones if um like herb stews. stems stewed mm. yeah yeah yeah, it's not the I, I definitely get a bit of the mint there. It's not, but it's not like a mint leaf. It's it's mm. definitely more of that uh, kind of woody stemmy character. Mm. Quite oily, which I, I like. Mm. Yeah. This is you know, I, I don't. I'm going to start using the word smooth more often because I, I like it. I don't I don't like the word smooth, but no, if you like it. Well, I, I mean, what, the, what does smooth I say? I, mean, it's, I, you know. I know it's like moist. It's very divisive. But um, right. I when something that's a little over 100 proof has a couple of years of age on it. Drinks below proof. Uh, drinks with very little burn or enough burn, or just enough burn that it's enjoyable as opposed to yeah. oppressive or stopping you from drinking more. Um, for me, that's that's what smooth means to me. Mm. It's okay. you know, something that drinks easier than it than you think it should, or yeah. or has the texture of being very smooth or silky or custardy. So uh, that's good. I mean, it, and the reason I always sort of take a back step when somebody says smooth is because you described it very eloquently. And if somebody can't, can't decide or describe what they mean by smooth, then mm-hmm. how can you use that word to describe it? So, no, I think yeah. that's, that's 100% fair. And, and the point is well, well taken about using but the word. Yes, this is, um, I like that silky, velvety character. It, you know, it doesn't, uh, doesn't have like a rough texture. It's got that Nice, uh, elegance to it. Yeah, I equate it to um, something that I really want to to make to see if I'm just pulling this out of my ass or if it's an actual tasting note. But like a peppered custard. Okay. Um, something that has the either the black pepper, the guayacol, or the uh, the white pepper spice, depending on what peppercorn it is. But it's not hot. It's very much a custardy feel. So I'm thinking of making something like a creme brulee type custard and studying it with a little bit of pepper mm. to see if that's exactly the flavor that I'm thinking of mm-hmm. because that that's what's coming to mind is it's it's not like yeah, you have I'm, a, getting, I'm a, getting that I understand what you're saying with that spicy yeah um, it's not like a, you have a pepper crusted steak where it's just those peppercorns are blasting right. your your tongue off right um it's pepper encased in creaminess and custardiness hmm yeah, I can see that. Well, you got to you got to try some bimbers at uh, a couple of weeks ago with me in the travel bar. Well, I mean, those. <laughs> this is quite good. Those put it on, on the back of the shelf. I mean, with no disrespect to this bottle, those bimbers. Uh, let's see, what do we have? We had the, we had three. I think we had three and there were the three um, U.S. single cast releases mm. uh, from last year. Right. There was the ex-bourbon cask, 
the Virgin American Oak and the Oloroso. Right. Yeah. I went with the, actually, what do I think was the best? I forget the old, the, um, ex bourbon, I think was the majority's favorite. If I remember correctly. Yeah. There was a few people that were, um, wafting between that and the virgin oak um like i i really like the virgin oak i think it's it you know it has a, that extra depth to it because there's no uh, like bourbon-esque flavor that's going to play around with that um but again you know a lot of, like <laughs> a lot of the american palate a lot of people are going to like that bourbony notes in there so that's probably you know that's a little sweeter uh mm-hmm. environment Whereas, which is interesting, at least to me, because I think of it as the Virgin American Oak should almost be more what they would like, since that's what the original bourbon would have been yes. aged in. Yep. So it's almost like getting the same product at two different points in its lifestyle. It's, uh, yeah. you know, in its life. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I see where you're coming from. I mean, I, I definitely think on that Virgin American Oak bimber, you got, there's a lot more vanilla, a lot more... Um, cinnamon notes on there um than on the ex-bourbon one yeah the the ex-bourbon does round it off a little bit it's it's more it's Mm -hmm. as you said it's a sweeter it's more vanilla forward so again later point in the life of the barrel where those initial points have been rounded off yeah. Um, so, you know, just take a moment to just uh, give a shout out to Travel Bar. I give a shout out to Mike every couple of episodes and it's well earned. Um, but yeah, so we met at that Travel Bar event. Yeah. You pulled out, I think it was tried 10 things that night. It was uh, it was quite a lineup. <laughs> and um, but it was mo- mainly focused on on Bimber and on um, Money Musk. Uh, yeah, the rest and be thankful rums. Uh, yep. So the Money Musk, uh, uh, two of them. And then uh, I treated everyone to uh, two of the Shizuoka Japanese uh, whiskeys. Yeah, I, I dream about that, uh, about the K one. I just, I dream <laughs> about it. I shouldn't have had that first. I did. And everything else during the night was great. But that just... Oh. I've looked at the prices. I can't do it, so I'll have to remember it. But it was it was quite an experience. Yeah. Um, that, that's so, our that's our newest um, uh, whiskey, our Japanese whiskey. That uh, and it's real Japanese uh, from Shizuoka Distillery. Um, it uh, yeah, the, when Dave was referring to K. Uh, that was distilled using the one of the old Karazawa distills that uh, Taiko, who owns uh, uh, Shizuoka, bought the old Karazawa equipment, was able to salvage one of the Karazawa stills. And uh, so every time you see K used on there, that was made using the K, the Karazawa still. And, and for uh, uh, those of you who are not necessarily familiar with Japanese whiskey, and Japanese whiskey history, um, Karuzawa, I mean, it closed in 2000. It was demolished um, soon after, but it was, it has become a legend in in world whiskey, let alone Japanese whiskey. Just one of those places like an Imperial in Scotland or um, that 
are no longer around. You find a cask once in a while, but yep. they're expensive as hell, but they're also incredible whiskeys. And uh, that was my first taste of one and uh, of anything from a Karazawa still. So, um, you know, a little screwed on that one, but <laughs> it was worth it. It was worth it. Yeah, and um, we're gonna have the uh, we're gonna have um, more of it coming out, um, and including uh, some that are going to be just one hundred percent Japanese barley, which in itself is rare. It's, yeah. it. I mean, there's a whole other tangent that if you've listened to um, listeners, if you've listened to episodes with um, Kayo distilling with Honkaku Spirits, uh, you know Japan very mountainous. Only 11% of the, of the land is arable to begin with. Not a lot of land to live on. So um, a lot of their overall barley is imported from any number of places around the world, many of which they share with Scotland. They've got Scottish distilleries. There's a whole deep, deep rabbit hole to go into with Japanese whiskeys and what's Japanese, what's not, what's Japanese right. barley, what's not. But um, long and short of it for this purpose is to say something is 100% Japanese barley is uh, rare, and I'm I'm looking forward to hopefully getting a taste of that when when more comes out because I, I again I just I loved it it was incredible. With that, um, I want to make sure. Do we miss anything on the bimber? Uh, no, I mean so that uh, <clears throat> like I said, the last year we got three separate casks exclusive for the U.S. This time around, we have this um, Bimber Bourbon cask, which was a small batch, and we also have a U.S. exclusive bottling, which was finished in uh, Oloroso. Uh, that was three hundred some odd bottles, um, and then <clears throat> the last one was. Uh, Apogee, which is actually a blended Scottish malt finished in Bimber barrels, a 12-year-old uh, blended malt. Um, they created that just to sort of indicate where they're going. Was, um, sorry, I'm trying to remember. Apogee was, oh yeah, that was one of the ones that we tried at Travel yeah. Bar as well. Yeah. Yes, that was, again, it was, it was wonderful. It was 92 proof, but I remember it being just... Uh, a bounty of flavors, and I know well, that's, 92, that's very general. 92.6 proof, David. 92.6 proof. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Darius just 46.3. He wanted to uh, have it stand out as something different and unique. So, hey, fair, enough. fair enough. Yes, it was. There were many bottles that I wanted to get out of that night, and um, that was certainly one of them. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I had to pull back a little bit, you know, too much of a good thing. <laughs> And that, but that's why I go to Travel Bar because I can try those yep. things again if I need to and if I have a hankering for something that most bars, if not any other bar in the U.S. will have. Yep. So I go down there. Yep. That's right. Yep. It's a great place. Yep. So uh, with that, I would guess then the next one would be the Armored Fusion? Yes, correct. Um, let, me, uh, let me grab my bottle up. All right. So this um, Armit Fusion was released in 2010. 
And this is what really put Amrut on the world map. Um, it, uh, it is 75% of the whiskey you just had, the classic single malt, and 25% of their peated single malt whiskey. So two whiskeys are made separately. Then they're married together and uh, aged a little further together uh, to let the flavors meld uh, before it's bottled. So uh, in 2010, was this was released, uh, uh, Whiskey Advocate, uh, back then Malt Advocate, named it World Whiskey of the Year. Uh, Whiskey Bible named it third best whiskey in the world. Um, uh, the uh, Malt Maniacs called the best daily dram. It just won a, total, a ton of awards and really put Amrit on the map. People were like, Indian whiskey, how is that possible? Uh, you know, so that, that was really where um, Amrit started taking off. All right. As you said, a bit of peat on there. It's not overpowering by any means. It's a very gentle peat. Yeah. So that's what, you know, I think that's a lot of the accolades because it doesn't have that, you know, only that 25% peat component, but on the nose, you may not pick it up, but certainly on the palate, on the back of the throat, you'll pick up that smokiness, um, that uh, little sweet, sweet smoke. Um, you know, they, they get the, they get the barley peated in Scotland to their specifications. Um, it's, uh, then the barley shipped to India and everything else is done there. Definitely feeling it more, like, as you said, down the throat, it's sweeter. It's, um, still more wood smoky to me mm -hmm. than, than, yeah. uh, peat, peat smoky. Definitely not medicinal at all. Um, <clears throat> with the the peat component for this, um, where like where does this peat profile come from? Uh, they so it's malted in Inverness by Baird Maltings. So mm -hmm. it's um, uh, inland peat, uh, probably Highland peat that they're using uh, to uh, to malt the barley. Gotcha. It, it it really does not taste at all like an Isla profile, um, which as we discussed earlier, there's lots going to there, but generally doesn't taste like an Isla profile, but yeah. also not not an Orcadian one either. No. So I mean Omri does sell does sell their peated single malt and their peated cast drink single malt separately. Um, you know, it was funny for there was a time when we were um Omri was fusion was in short supply. And we had a number of restaurants that were using it, you know, the uh, Indian restaurants and stuff. And uh, I remember one restaurant saying, oh, I'm going to make my own. I'm just going to combine the, the two. And I said, you can try. It's not going to work that way. You know, it needs a, the right balance, the right time to, to sit in the barrels together to, to create that uh, flavor profile. This would be, uh, it just, it begs for another sip. I'm having trouble talking because mm -hmm. it's, it's, um, making my mouth water which a couple of years ago p would have made my mouth do something else and now it's making me water instead so that's good but the, you, were, you were not a big peat person back then no the the strongest peat i could have handled would have been like a johnny walker black okay um and then someone i don't even remember where or who 
introduced me to Highland Park. And uh, I knew that I didn't like the medicinal style of peat. Uh, but Highland Park, I mean, it's it's Heather peat. It's it's yeah. a little salinity. It's totally different, uh, let alone mainland or inland peat, highland versus lowland. Uh, and through Highland Park and that kind of smoke, I was able to try to get, to get into smoke and peat a little bit more. Then I, as I went from that, I went back to then inland. Uh, Highland was suggested as the next route, route for me to go down. Uh, tried the kind of Campbelltown mm-hmm. style peat. On that one, I actually don't mind the peat profile so much. I'm not a huge uh, fan of the malt profile underneath for the Campbelltown style. Just, just me. Plenty of friends who are uh, who just can't smell that funk from a mile away and can't yep. wait to get over there. It's not my thing. But only through a couple of years of building up have I been able to get to a point where, um, I, like I said, I love Kalila blends with peat. Um, this is uh, not heavily peated by any means, but uh, would have been too much for me a couple mm. of years ago. Yeah. Um, and now I can try a Lafroig. And believe me, if you're if someone from Lafroig is listening, like I'm, I'm not dumping on your brand at all. Believe me. <laughs> um, the, but for me to enjoy it, it had to be something like last year's Cartridge release. Oh yeah, there was a sure. PX finish. So yeah. you know, heavy, heavy sherry. Yep. Kind of counter it. <clears throat> but um, but to, to that point, that's why I want to do something that introduces people to Pete because it's, again, it's, it's so much more than people think it is, particularly from an American perspective. Yes. And um, if more American whiskeys are going to start using Pete and smoke in that kind of way, uh, then I think drinkers should be prepared for it if they want to be. Well, I mean, you've, you had Westland doing their Pete whiskeys. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You have a few others, uh, American distillers doing that uh, mm-hmm. because there is peat available in the U.S. Uh, sure. So, you know, but it's, again, going to be a different uh, different components going into peat. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, for your for your listeners who may not know what peat is, I and mean, peat is pre-coal uh, stage. It's, it's these uh, little ponds that get filled up with um, tree and leaves and uh, all kinds of organic material that over thousands of years decay and they settle down into this uh, first a mossy uh, sort of spongy substance and then they get a little harder over time. Eventually it'll turn into coal. Uh, but, you know, back then in Scotland and, and especially in Northern Scotland, uh, you didn't have any trees. So you had to cut out little blocks of peat and use that for your heat source. Um, nothing wrong with it, except because of the moisture in there, you get smoke. That comes out of the peat and that smoke clings to the oils and the barley and gives you those lovely flavors that you either like or don't like. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Impex imports premium and rare whiskey, gin, rum, mezcals, liqueurs, and cordials from all over the world, from Scotland to Japan to Israel, Belgium, and Wales. Whether it's Kilhoman, Pandaren, Portiskeg, Glenallaki, Ohishi, Fukano, M&H, Ardnamurkin, Black Tot, and more. There's guaranteed to be something in the Impex portfolio you'll love. Impex also oversees some of the most prestigious independent bottlers in the game, including Single Malts of Scotland, Single Cast Nation, Adelphi Selection, 
and its own Impex collection. Take a look at their site, impexbev.com, or reach out if you're curious about their offerings. I'm proud to have many of their bottles on my shelves and love sharing them with friends whenever I can. Thank you to Sam and to the team for joining the Whiskering Podcast as guest and sponsor. And now, a word from our newest sponsor. The most exclusive whiskey in the world can't be bought in a store. Born in Edinburgh, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society is the world's largest whiskey club, with over 30,000 members worldwide. They bottle each cask of whiskey as is, no diluting, no artificial coloring, or chill filtration. With new whiskeys released every week, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society offers the opportunity to taste spirits straight from the cask. I've been a member for over two years now, and I've loved the chance to explore my favorite distilleries with truly unique offerings, in particular from distilleries 4 and 53, and discovering new single malts not available anywhere else. Not a Scotch fan? No problem. The Scotch Malt Whiskey Society releases 20-plus bottles each month to its members, including, yes, Scotch, but also including gin, bourbon, rum, and more. In fact, my favorite recent bottling was a corn whiskey, from the largest family-owned distillery in the U.S., aged 11 years in New Oak and bottled at cast strength. This is a bottling that people have clamored for for years, and it was only available to Scotch Malt Whiskey Society members. If you're interested in joining, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society has graciously offered a discount to listeners of this podcast. Use code WRP, short for Whiskey Ring Podcast, at checkout for 20% off an annual membership at smwsa.com. That stands for Scotch Malt Whiskey Society of America. I will also be putting the link and code in my bio and show notes for this and upcoming episodes. Thank you to the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society for joining the Whiskering Podcast as our newest sponsor, and please visit smwsa.com with code WRP for 20% off your annual membership. Yep, those, uh, those phenols, those creosotes, um, which we've got to figure out a better name for them because they're not great sounding words, you know, when a word mm. you just hear it and doesn't have a great connotation by the sound of it, mm-hmm. but you taste it. And it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Westland doing them. Um, Santa Fe, of course, has some mesquite smokes. Yeah. Um, Kings County did their peated bourbon, mm-hmm. which uh, is one of the more unique products that you'll find in, in us. Yeah. whiskey, I think in general. And then um, I don't know if, you uh, know this particular distillery. I talk about him a lot, uh, but uh, Spirits of French Lick. Sure. Yeah. So um, Alan there, I have uh, the Whiskey Witch from him using Indiana peat. Hmm. Interesting. And, and to your point that peat is found in really in most temperate areas around the world um, where it's, you know, it's not cold enough that it's going to freeze and it's not hot enough that it's going to dry out. Right. You're likely to have a peat bog. Yep. Um, he said, you know, he's lived in Indiana his whole life. He's made it his mission to elevate Indiana whiskey, elevate the Black Forest in Indiana, um, a, and make Indiana more than just MGP. Mm. And he said, he's like, I had no idea there was, well, it's Alan. So he's probably said, I had no fucking idea that there was Pete in, <laughs> in Indiana. Um, yeah. And even to that point, I mean, Kings County's Pete is coming from, from Scotland, from, yes. um, from Scottish Pete. But there is plenty of peat in the U.S., but there's been a great reticence to use it because if you're 
regular go-tos are a bourbon or a rye, particularly a bourbon from Kentucky, where you have that core flavor profile, something with peat's going to really knock you on your ass. It is, but you know, it's surprising when you give somebody at a, a show, I'll pour somebody, they go, oh, I'll try that. And I go, okay, it, you know, just want to make sure you know it's peated. Oh yeah, okay. And they're like, wow, this is what I, what is this? I've never had anything like it before. So, you know, you either, you either the first time you taste that, you like it or at least intrigued by it, or you're totally turned off by it. Yep. It's, it's the cilantro of the whiskey world. <laughs> well, think- I've got to admit, that was my, my first awakening to, uh, or uh, not awakening, but um, sort of set me on the route of, of wanting to know more about single malts because growing up in, I grew up in Canada and we, the, yes, late seventies, early eighties, uh, the only single malt available was Glenfiddich. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my, my dad mostly had Johnny Walker black and, and Shiva's 25 at home. That's there was, was go-to whiskeys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the first time I was at a friend's house, um, a business colleague and he said, Oh, I just got this. And he poured me, uh, Lafroig. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, wow. What is this is incredible, uh, you know. And after my second glass, I was I was hooked. I said, I I need to know more about why all these whiskeys taste so differently. I got to ask you before we uh, kick into the last third, which is Mister Pete and Pete Reek. So you know, no smoke coming there. Hmm. Um, of I'm trying to think about people I know or people I've listened to who. Uh, Pete was introduced to them either very early or it was their first dram of whiskey that they really thought about and tried. Uh, for me, it wasn't. I, I went very much the American route, then to Scotch, then back around, and bounced around from there. But I think of, uh, you know, like Mark Gillespie at Whiskey Cast. Mm-hmm. I think Ardbeg 10 was his first one. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you saying you had Lafroy early on because um, Glenfiddich, the normal Glenfiddich doesn't have any any peat in there uh and i think mike too actually i don't remember if he started at mike at travel bar um i yeah. don't know if he started there but he is a huge pete fan huge yes. head. and i'm just curious because you've obviously talked to many more people in the whiskey industry than i have at this point um is there something that kind of dictates that if you've if you try pete earlier on in your journey that you're going to like it or is it really just person by person I think, it's, it I think it's person by person. I mean, I think it's, it's, uh, it's sense sensitivity to certain flavors. Um, you know, either, you know, like some people like sour, some people like tart things. Some people like bitter, you know, what makes people like those, you know, I, I'm not a big, I don't like a lot of sweet stuff. I like something that's going to be a little more savory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, perhaps that's my upbringing of the kind of food I had growing up. But I, uh, you know, I mean, there is a lot of sweet things in Indian cooking as well, but I just, that's what I gravitate towards. So I, I don't think, I don't think anybody's predisposed to going a certain way. It just depends on, uh, you know, why, why does somebody like um, a Cabernet more than a Merlot? Sure. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or a Sauvignon Blanc more than a Chardonnay. I mean, you know, there's, there's differences and it's just, it's personal preference. 
Gary, it was a question that's been ruminating in my mind, and you've been the uh, the first guest in a, in a little while for whom that question was appropriate. So uh, appreciate that. With so with that in mind, I think we are ready to move on to Mr. Pete. All right, and I, and, and I'm, I should say I'm assuming that you want to do Mr. Pete before the Black Adder Pete yes. week. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So Mr. Pete is a uh, brand new brand. Uh, brand new brand, totally in a brand new brand to us. Uh, it is a younger uh, peated whiskey, um, a single malt whiskey that is made uh, specifically to Fox and Fitzgerald who own the brand, uh, their style that they wanted. Uh, it's a light, lighter drinking supposed to be like an everyday peat whiskey if you like uh, um, peat hat or or smoke hat or one of those kind of things this is probably right there uh you can see how you know sorry when we're broadcasting you won't be able to see but you can see it's it is lighter in color yes, um, it's, it's very you know, light color doesn't clear. tell you anything yeah. uh, about a whiskey but it's um it's 92 proof as well uh, and it, uh, it's from a undisclosed, uh, distillery. And like I said, it's made specifically for the brand exclusive to them. Right. So you could say, I mean, it, it's, as you noted, it's a single malt scotch whiskey. So it has to be made of one distillery and everything that goes along with that. Um, and specifically mentions an Isla distillery, but one, who, someone who's drinking this and particularly someone who likes Isla whiskey and peated whiskeys shouldn't necessarily be looking for a distillery style on this because it's made by, you know, like a, like someone else's recipe in someone else's kitchen mm-hmm. rather than adapting that own distillery style. So without, without revealing who it is, you shouldn't be looking for like, is this Lockable and is this Ardbeg? It's not like that. Well, it's not. So it's not Isla to begin with. So oh. Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. I was looking at the Pete Reek on that one. My bad. Yeah. So it, this is a, this is a a uh, Scotland Scotland mainland peated whiskey. Gotcha. Um, so even more so, don't look for Lagavulin or Ardbeg because that's not <laughs> even the right area. Um, sometimes I just look over a label and I'm like, I just miss the obvious thing and. You know, of course, there'll be um, uh, tasting notes and, and uh, pictures of these bottles before the episode comes out. And the Mr. Pete one had me a little worried because <laughs> the label uh, has a fire extinguisher yep. smoke. It's red and white and black. Um, or it's black and white and red all over, whichever way you want to go with that. And but with a very light color. So it scared me a little bit because it says heavily peated. But again, I, I haven't quite tasted it yet. I just nosed it. But on the nose, it's definitely stronger than, uh, let's say, the Fusion was. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because it's all, all peat. There's no, mm-hmm. there's not, nothing else in it. Um, but, you know, the interesting thing, David, is with peated malts, peated whiskeys, the younger they are, the higher the phenols are going to be. Uh, when you, when uh, uh, peated whiskey ages, uh, both in a barrel and then, you know, even once the barley is peated, 
the peat level starts to dissipate and it dissipates again during distillation and again during uh, maturation. So when you look at something like uh, a, a brand I won't, I won't name that has, you know, deigns to say that they're, they're the peated, highest peated whiskey anywhere. Uh, when you see peat levels over 200, um, I will guarantee you that that is not measured at the bottling stage. That is measured at the pre-distillation stage uh, because there's no way you would be able to drink a whiskey that was 200 plus ppm uh, mm. phenol measurement. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, it, you wouldn't, your, your taste buds would just be totally messed up. Right. So you'd, you'd be, you'd be drinking just a liquid of, of campfire ash at that point. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah. you know, that, so that's, you know, the people who go crazy over that, that's uh, again, marketing, you know, uh, nod to them, but uh, it, uh, I think you have to be cognizant of when a brand uh, a whiskey has their discloses what the PPM is or the, uh, the female phenols per million um, that you want to find out. Well, are they talking about pre or post distillation? I'm tasting through this is very, this is complex, complex peatiness. There's more, what I would describe as a, um, no, it's the right word, like a, almost a leafiness. Hmm. As, it, as if the peat involved were a younger peat as opposed to an older, more decomposed one. So a little fresher, I guess, yeah. is the, the word. Yeah, I was, I was sort of equated to like a, a, a walk through a, a forest after a rainfall where you get, you're smelling that decaying wood. You're getting that, the, you know, the leaves. It, it's got to be in the fall, right? When the leaves have fallen and the right. decay that's starting to happen. Uh, exactly. And uh, maybe a little bit of um, mushroom mushroominess as well. Um, you know, again, that's all decay, fungus, all that, all the good stuff yeah. that's it's uh, coming out in the glass. Definitely, it's it's certainly earthy. Um, there's no, again, it's, it's inland. There's no salinity um, that I can tell. Yeah. Um, very much, very earthy. I am not. I think I have to try it a few more times to to appreciate it more. At first glance, I'm not a huge fan of this particular profile mm -hmm. or first taste, I should say. It is a little bit too too earthy for me. Okay. Um, to be fair, mushrooms are one of the foods that I hate most in the world. <laughs> um, but I do like I like the smell more than I like the taste. I'll put it that way. I, you know, the okay. smell, as you said, of walking through where it's just after the rain is decomposing that i quite enjoy that i enjoy quite a bit um the actual earthiness is a little bit too much for me but that being said um i know this is non-age stated but you said it was on the younger side yes uh does not again does not taste young i would say there's a little bit of rawness maybe in the, in the cask a little bit mm -hmm. of woodiness there but it, the malt itself does not taste young no no, I think again, it talks, it showcases the uh, quality of barrels that we use, the quality of the distillate. Um, this is a distillery that um, 
makes slow distillation longer fermentation. Um, so they're, they're really trying to get more flavor coming out of their, their distillate. Um, and I, before we move on to the last one, I wanted to, go to jump back to a point that you made, which is about the measurement of PPMs. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, again, without naming, I know which one you're talking about, but without naming that one, um, when I had um, Martin Mark Vardson from Highland Park on to, to talk about it, and I asked him about peat levels and such, he pointed out that, um, number one, this, the same PPM, it's like 40, just to throw out a number, 40 PPM of one whiskey and one peat type will not equate to 40 PPM of another one. Um, Highland Park's peat style is, and I'm just using them as an example because it's the one I'm most familiar with and all that. Um, their peat style is different. So their PPM, even if it's 40, it's going to be a gentler style. A 40 PPM of Kalila or, or any of any number of others will be very different. Yes. Um, plus to reiterate what you said, which is really important and worth noting, um, the, P the PPMs and the phenols are going to decrease over time in the barrel. They're going to decrease during the distillation process. So um, yeah, if you're showing that ridiculous level of peat smoke, you, you're not going to get it to that point. And I think you said it best when it's like, you wouldn't want to drink that. There's a certain, I, there are people who are peat heads and then there's a certain level of peat that you just can't drink yeah yeah it's like drinking exactly. something too too alkaline like i get it you like you know at a certain at one point you're drinking alkaline water at another point you're drinking bleach like that's not the same thing <laughs> they're both alkaline they're very different yeah and there's a limit um that's true good point so um you know with that i think that's a perfect intro actually to the last pour which is um black adder raw cask Peat Reek. And, um, and it, uh, it's a Peat Reek 10 year old. Um, mm -hmm. And it actually, this is Isla, David. It says right on there, a blended yes. Isla malt. Yes, this was the one I was looking at when I mistakenly said Isla for the previous so pour. This is, um, so when it says blended malt uh, as opposed to a blended whiskey, uh, it means that it is two or more single malts that have been blended together. So the malts would have come from different distilleries, um, but all on Isla to create this. Um, again, aged for a minimum of 10 years. This is uh, exclusive cast that I selected for the US. I think it's 300 and it'll say on there, how many bottles? 300 and some odd uh, bottles. 344, yeah. 344 bottles um, that came out of there and every bottle is numbered. Um, this, uh, now it, it's a proprietary um, creation of Black Adders. They, Pete Reek, they never mentioned the distillery on there. Uh, it's not always Isla. It could be from the mainland as well. And if it's from the mainland, it would not say Isla on there. Um, sorry, this is not a blended, this is a single malt. This is not a blended malt. Right. Yes. Right? Sorry. This right. was a single malt. Right. I'm thinking of, the, we have a smoking Isla, which is a, a blended malt. But this is a uh, a single malt from an Isla distillery, ten years old. Gotcha. And is this is this one um, without not asking to reveal the distillery by any means? The uh, 
is this one that is of the distillery style rather than a, a custom uh, one? Yes, it 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 certainly is. Um, however, what you're getting is a single barrel, um, whereas you know most of what distilleries release would be a, an assemblage of 50, 100, 250 barrels put together for their release. Um, so when you get a single barrel, you're getting all the new nuances that come from that barrel. Um, so, you know, for example, I, I did a, a tasting a couple of weeks ago where I had exactly the same whiskey, same age, um, distilled the same time, two different barrels and you tasting the, the two different whiskeys, hmm. uh, different, you know, they're, and it's just all the barrel influence that goes on to that. And speaking of this, I mean, even before getting into the nose and the palate on this, uh, one of the numbers that jumped out to me was the 344 bottle count. So even at, um, at a 700 mil bottle, so 344 would be about 320 or so bottles if, it were, if they were in 750s. Um, so what I was trying to do was basically figure out like what was the size of the cask that would have been used for this because and bef before you answer because I want to make sure I'm saying the right thing here uh, normally with a, a 53 gallon barrel you get in maybe 240 250 at most out of a barrel uh, and this being this doesn't uh, appear to be finished or or being anything other than let's say an ex bourbon cask or or quote unquote normal uh maturing cask maturation mm -hmm. cask so but with 344 bottles there had to have been either more than one barrel or, or um a larger barrel used Am I off well, it's, on that? it's uh i think it probably says on there it's a hogshead um which is about 250 gallons so it's bigger than a ASB, which is an American standard barrel. Uh, so the 53 gallon, um, it's about 220 liters. So a little, little smaller. Um, and also you'll notice the high alcohol strength on there. Sure. Um, yes. So it didn't lose a lot uh, mm -hmm. over that time period. And um, yeah, it was probably a pretty, pretty wet barrel to retain that much liquid. So, um, you know, and, and, uh, you'll have to describe this for your listeners, but you'll notice that the bottom of the barrel, the uh, bottom of the bottle has barrel sediment in there. Um, so I that's the black hatter raw cask, which uh, symbolizes um, the way whiskey used to be. So if you went into a, a bar in the 1800s, uh, early 1900s, there would not be a row of whiskey bottles back of the mm -hmm. bar. You would just go, give me a whiskey and, the barkeep would have a barrel from the local distillery and pull right from there. So you're getting all the fats and oils and everything else. Uh, so very little filtration on this. Um, so, you know, no, no water has been added to it to increase the yield. It is, it is what it is and what came out of the barrel. So. Yep. It's nacho filtered. No, yep. <clears throat> pardon me. Nacho filtered, no added color. Uh, 57.7 ABV, so 115.4 proof. Um, and yes, there is, I don't know if I'll be able to get a, a good photo, but um, just a bit of, of barrel sediment, but you can tell it's black, it's 
like barrel char. Um, it's not the yellow sediment you get in old whiskeys that kind of tells you it's not good anymore. Right. Um, I don't, I was looking, I don't see a hogshead on here, but that makes that, that answers the question that uh, makes much more sense to me. Yeah. And so it uh, would not have been like a, a sherry butt or a you know, something bigger than that. Because uh, those you'd get like 600 out of or something like that. Yeah, you get That's five plus out of there, depending on, on how old it is. But, uh, you know, yeah. this this probably was very tight barrel, uh, probably first first fill. Um, so, you, you know, you didn't lose a lot. Um, I got to tell you, where, whereas with Mr. Pete, I was a little unsure. This one I'm loving right off the bat. It is good. Uh, That's why I picked it and wanted it just, yeah, just for us, just for the U.S. So. Absolutely. I mean, um, in a, an example of how it makes a difference, how you smell things, um, with my mouth closed, um, I'm getting kind of a a uh, light pretzel crust mm. on there, not salted, doesn't taste or smell maritime to me, but uh, definitely a pretzel crust, a little alkalinity yeah. there. Mouth open, that uh, pretzel crust goes into an entire oven full of um, soft pretzels, little brown sugar on there. Oh, nice, yeah. Um, yeah, certainly, you know, the sweet smoke is certainly prevalent there. Mm -hmm. uh, that that earthiness is definitely there. It's almost like a, a barbecued um, pork belly um, mm -hmm. kind of thing. You know, I mean, yeah, you have that, that fattiness in there. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's that's the kind of peat that I am really loving right now is the the barbecued pork. Oh, there you yeah. go. <laughs> it fits in that profile, especially if you have like that kind of a thing finished in, um, yeah. if you add a little sherry on there. Mm. Yeah. We've had those in the past and they're, yeah. Pete, Pete and sherry, Pete and port go really well together too. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's it good is. to end on a, on a high note where um, you're actually enjoying a Peter whiskey, David. So that's, <laughs> that's great to yeah. see. Hey, look, I, I do enjoy Pete now, but um, yeah. yeah, this would, I, I would not have enjoyed this a couple of years ago. And again, had it would have nothing to do with the quality of the product. It would be about where my palate is and my palate journey sure. at that point. Yep. So um, no, but this is, this is quite, quite good. And uh, just to round out to your point earlier about going back again to PPMs, this is, says right on the bottle, 20 PPM. Yep. So it was this, um, pre or post measurement that would have been pre mm. yeah yeah it's it's really hard to do it post very 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 if any distilleries will disclose it at uh, uh um post distillation or, or pre-bottling so would this would have, they would have this lost the numbers yeah, this would have taken you know, because you you specify the uh, phenol level that you want your barley peated to, and the uh, malting facility would do so. Right. Now that was that was really excellent. Um, I am going to probably for the rest of the night do a little bit more of the fusion and the peat reek. Great. Um, uh -huh. And if you see peat reek on the shelf, 
please don't. And this goes back to the words too. Like I, I love circling back, but the wording, do not be afraid of the word reek. Um, like the, it has a, it has a meaning in whiskey that it does not necessarily have elsewhere. When you say something reeks of something, not good connotation. Peat reek. It's meant to smell like peat. <laughs> it does not like that. Um, yeah, so, um, I did promise we would keep it to a tight hour and a half. So, um, Raj, once again, thank you. This was incredibly generous of you with um, both whiskey and the time to, to try these bottles, to go through um, really all but one that I had never tried before uh, and some new ideas, new things, and just to talk to someone who clearly loves the whiskey, loves unique things, honoring things, but also bringing a little twist to them. Um, so again, just, just thank you for that. And uh, it was a real pleasure to have you on. Um, hold on for a second after we finish the recording, just close out in the meantime, where can people find you and where can people find glass revolution import products? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram at whiskey Raj, no E in whiskey, um, and glassrev.com, G-L-A-S-S-R-E-V.com. Our website, um, go on there, sign up <clears throat> to become a dram hunter, sign up for a newsletter. Uh, you'll get invited to exclusive tastings, uh, uh, opportunity to, to buy some exclusive bottlings and uh, win some stuff. So, you know, that's uh, come and learn all about our, our new new stuff that's coming out, new whiskeys, new, new spirits. Uh, we've got a, a big slew of new whiskeys coming out and uh, some great rums as well that are headed this way. Absolutely. And I uh, just signed up to be a dram hunter either yesterday or the day before for that exact reason. So once again, um, thanks to Raj. This has been another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. Make sure to follow on all your podcast apps. Leave a five-star rating and review if you like it. Uh, reach out to me if you got something you want me to improve. Thanks for listening and hope you join us again next week.